the guy I'd shared the job with. The two of us were very good colleagues. He said to me, it's the most fantastic quote, but Tim probably has no idea how influential it was in my career. When he said to me, Jane, isn't it time you became a full-time skiver like the men rather than a part-time martyr like the women? And I realised that I was martyring myself by doing five days work in four days in order to be able to do the shopping. If I want to play golf or if I'm going to an academic meeting, I just go. And it really resonated with me and it changed my mindset about what I would be able to do. So actually then I went up to full-time and I've worked full-time ever since. A very warm welcome to the Leaders with Babies podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I'm the CEO and founder of Leaders Plus, an award-winning social enterprise dedicated to supporting leaders with babies and with young children to continue to progress their careers. Today's podcast is supported by the London Women's Leadership Network, part of the NHS London Leadership Academy, which is a pan-London NHS leadership development organisation working to support healthcare leaders across the capital. Leaders Plus has worked with the NHS London Leadership Academy to develop practical guidance for managers and parents in the NHS to navigate that very crucial period before, during and after maternity leave, share parental leave and adoption leave. If you are about to go on parental leave or are just about to return to work, I highly recommend you download the guidance for free from the NHS London Leadership Academy website or the Leaders Plus website. All too often, new mums and dads tell me they feel they need to choose between their career aspirations and enjoying their young children. And I just think it shouldn't have to be this way. And it doesn't have to be this way. And that's why I set up a fellowship programme for Leaders with Babies, which includes senior leader mentors, career development support, general support with work-life balance and so on. But I realised that actually... The role models that we speak to on the programme have so much more to offer and I want a wider group of people to be able to access them than can actually sit in the room during the fellowship programme. So that's why I set up this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. My guest today is Professor Dame Jane Daker, who was the president of the Royal College of Physicians and who has just told me in the pre-conversation just now that you're incredibly passionate about supporting women and parents who are coming through the ranks now. So very warm welcome, Jane. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for asking me. So why don't we start start a bit with your story? Do you want to tell me about your family and your career trajectory? Yes, sure. My career aspirations actually started when I was 12 years old. My father was a doctor and anaesthetist, and I had three brothers. So I came from a very male-dominated family, which I think probably has had an impact on me because I started my life batting off the boys, and I'm still doing it all these years later. Because my father was a doctor, I looked around and wondered what I was going to do. It never occurred to me that I would do anything other than have a career. And I think he influenced me hugely and I decided that I was going to be a doctor. I was good at science at school and my father used to call me in a slightly pejorative way a fast-talking ratbag. And that made me feel, well, okay, I can do the communication thing too. Why don't I put the two together and become a doctor. So I actually was very determined about it then. And from the age of 12, that was what I was going to do. 
Fantastic. And tell me a bit about your family. You you just mentioned before we started recording that you have a granddaughter, a baby granddaughter in the house at the moment. I do. Yes. Um, so I'm one of four children. Uh, I was number two of four. I'm married into a family where there were five boys, so even more boys. So my husband's family is very large. We have three children. The oldest of which has also just had my first grandchild, my grandbaby, we call her. And they've recently started living with us because of issues around moving and house prices and London. So they've moved in with us for a little while. I don't know how long that little while is going to go, but it's actually lovely. So I've got two of my daughters living with us here at the moment. And my son is getting married in about a month's time. Mm, fantastic. Congratulations on all fronts. And back when you when you had your children, when you throughout your pregnancy, throughout your early years of bringing those babies up to what are now grown up people with their own lives, what were the biggest challenges in terms of combining that with continuing your career? I think there were an enormous number of challenges in doing that. I think the one that was perhaps the most complicated was time management. I often used to regard myself as being a juggler on a monocycle mm. because I felt as if I was was going through the most enormous balancing act. I was trying to keep on the monocycle, but was also trying to juggle balls and catch them at the same time. And it often felt that I was either going to fall off the monocycle or drop one of the balls. And it was quite a struggle. Mm. My husband was uh, working in television at the time. He was a television news person, producer, and he was the editor of uh, a big national news program. So he was hugely busy and very reactive. And so was I. Mm. And we had three children. And sometimes it just felt very difficult keeping it all together. Mm. So what made you keep going? <laughs> lots of other women in your situation at that time have given up because there was a lot less support out there. Yes, it never really occurred to me to give up. There was when my first child was born, I really struggled because I was terribly ill. I had a very difficult delivery and ended up back in hospital in the high dependency unit. And the baby was sort of taken away for about a week and cared for by my husband, my mother-in-law and my mother. Mm. And I wondered at that stage whether I would ever actually get back to being at work. And I was also, that was in the days when if you were in a research job, you didn't necessarily get maternity leave. So during this time when I was terribly ill, I also actually lost my job because I was mm. a research fellow. And I was actually quite cross about this. And I thought, how dare they take my career away from me just because I've had children? And to a certain extent, that spurred me on. Mm. So I lost my job. I had no income. I had a baby. I wasn't very well and went to see the local London postgraduate dean and said, this is ridiculous. How can this happen? Mm. And he was, he, he, there wasn't anything definite he could do for me because there were no schemes or there were no part-time training courses, but he was very encouraging in helping me to claw my way back into doing medicine. Mm. And so that in a way 
made me a bit more determined to hang on in because I had to fight quite hard to mm. to stay in and I just couldn't see myself not doing the career that I'd been pretty sure I was going to do since the age of 12. And through that, was it just your determination that gave you the confidence? Did, or did you did you experience any moments of lack of confidence or, or not really? So, so interestingly, I didn't say confidence, I said determination. Yeah. So no, I wasn't confident at all. I had a boss who at the time said that he'd never had a woman who'd had a child and been able to come back to work. So he was quite sure mm. that I wasn't going to be able to do it. So mm. there wasn't any point in investing in me. Mm. I don't know what it was that made me do it. I loved my job. I loved being a doctor. I really loved caring for my patients. And I just didn't see how it couldn't be possible somehow. So what I did, I was doing a research job. So I applied for uh, everything. Mm -hmm. So I applied for research jobs, uh, research positions, research grants. And I also at the same time applied for senior registrar mm -hmm. roles. I was a registrar at the time when I had the first baby. Well, I was just about to become a registrar. I remember actually applying for the first one before I'd had the baby and being pregnant and not getting it and wondering whether that had anything to do with it, which I suspect it did. And in the end, I was successful in being interviewed for a research job. And then a senior registrar job came up. And I was working with a, a guy who was another research registrar in the department. He wanted to fulfill his research ambitions. He's now become a, a very well-known researcher, Tim Spector. And I wanted to have a bit more time to be able to look after my, my child, children, it then became. And so Tim and I applied for the first job share in general medicine wow. at St. Bartholomew's Hospital. Do you mind me asking when that was? Oh, crikey. It was about 1987. Wow. Pioneer. Uh, well, no, desperate. <laughs> so Tim and I applied for this job together and I was, I don't know whether Tim will kill me for saying this, so I was pretty competent clinically. He was pretty competent research-wise. He wanted to spend all of his time doing epidemiology research, which he still does. I needed to have a bit less on call because I, by that stage, had two small children and was trying to, to get back into the frame. And so we shared a job as a rheumatology and general medicine senior registrar. And what we did was we did a month on and a month off, and but did our clinics continuously so I had half the number of clinics and half the number of on calls and then I took up the research job that I was uh, had been offered and did that in the second half of my time and mm. what that did was give me the flexibility to have a month doing clinical work but then a month doing research and mm. both were slightly less onerous because they were spread about each other and it halved the number of on-calls I did from a one in three nights on-call to a one in six. Hmm. And that became achievable because it meant it was just more than one night a week. And I did that for a few years, or not a few years, until my second child was about three. Mm -hmm. And 
then was applying for consultant posts. And what happened was I'd been very interested in medical education and had also got interested in clinical skills, largely because clinical skills were taught really badly. And I'd had a very scary experience when I was a registrar when the boss was on holiday and I'd had to put in a pacing wire on my own in the middle of the night, having never done one before, which just frightened the living daylights out of me. Mm. And so I became quite clear that the teaching in medical schools needed to be improved and teaching clinical skills needed to be improved particularly. So I spent a lot of time educating and sort of somehow people recognized that I was doing it and putting a lot of effort into it. And so they were thinking at Bart's at the time about setting up a clinical skills laboratory and they needed a clinician to lead the setting up of the what they call the clinical skills laboratory. And so that senior lectureship came up and I applied for it and got it. And so then I stopped doing the job share senior registrar post and went for this clinical skills post mm. full time. So to start with, I negotiated to work four days a week instead of five. And because it was a new post and it was an academic post, it was a bit more flexible because there were not part-time posts in those mm. days, or at least there was. There was something called the PM 79.3 scheme, and there was one part-time senior registrar job for rheumatology in the whole of the UK. Mm. Well, exactly. And, and at that time, there wasn't the legal protection that there is nowadays. And of course, there was a lot less, as you say, examples of where it had been done before. So from starting one of the first job shares to then negotiating part-time, what did you learn during those early years about influencing your seniors and getting those sort of things agreed? I wasn't really aware that I was doing it. Okay. I was doing it because it needed to be done. I negotiated work to work four days a week. And the reason why I did that was because I needed to do the shopping on a Friday. It was before internet shopping. And mm. I and I <laughs> knew that I could do everything I needed to be able to do if I had a day off to do the shopping and say hello to my children. And so I did that. And after I'd done that for a few years with Tim, who was the guy I'd shared the job with, the two of us were, were very good colleagues. He said to me, it's the most fantastic quote that Tim probably has no idea how influential it was in my career. When he said to me, Jane, isn't it time you became a full-time skiver like the men? rather than a part-time martyr like the women. And I realized that I was martyring myself by doing five days work in four days in order to be able to do the shopping. Mm. Mm, and he said, if I want to play golf or if I'm going to an academic meeting, I just go. And mm. it really resonated with me and it, and it changed my mindset about what I would be able to do. So actually then I went up to full-time and I've worked full-time ever since. Mm. Fantastic. But at the same time, you did what you needed to do. I wasn't thinking, who do I need to influence? I was just thinking, well, in order to do what I feel I need to do or I want to do, 
this is the best way forward. Mm. Occasionally, people used to say some dodgy things to me, and that used to spur me on. So what inspired me may be anger at people who told me I wouldn't be able to do it. There was one stage when I hadn't finished writing up my thesis, and I was a senior registrar, and I was also doing general medicine, and I was pregnant. A senior college person took me on one side. I think it was the college tutor or someone with a formal role took me on one side and said, look, Jane, this is ridiculous. You cannot be a researcher and a physician and have babies. You've got to choose. It is just not possible to do all of this. So you've got to choose. So I think he was trying to help me. Well, he did help me, I suppose, by making me so angry that I felt like saying, look, who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? I've set out to do this. I am going to do this. And you're not going to stop me. Mm. At the time, though, I was at Bart's in the mid-1980s. There were a lot of inspirational women around. The role model I often quote is Parveen Kumar. So Parveen was an Asian lady with two children who was working full-time in medicine, and she was fine. So she inspired me. Leslie Reese, who was the dean at the time, didn't have children, but was a woman. And there was also Leslie Southgate, who was the professor of primary care there. So I did have strong role models who spurred me on. But to sort of go back and answer your question, I wasn't being strategic. I was just doing what needed to be done. Mm, fantastic. And is there anything you would do differently with the benefit of hindsight? I think then it was very difficult to know what I could have done differently. I think that people now actually have many more opportunities to work less than full-time or to do things flexibly. And if I could have done, I would have preferred to do that. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you tell your daughters, any advice that you give them? So I'm constant, uh, currently trying to mentor my oldest daughter back to work. Uh, she went back two weeks ago after having had a year off for maternity leave. So I have to say one of the things that that I would do differently or that I think she did better than me was to take enough time off around your children. When you were quite an outlier by having children, there was a lot of pressure on you to get back to work quickly and then to just pretend they didn't exist. Mm. And that was quite hard. So in mentoring Claire, my daughter, I, first of all, am very keen that she should go back to work and I'm very clear that I think she will have a better life if she goes back to work. Why is that? Because I look around me and I see my peers who gave up work and see them having much narrower lives and much less fulfillment. So they haven't done nearly as many things as I've been able to do. They haven't had nearly as many opportunities as I've been able to do. And although at the time it's hard, it's really hard, to me, working through it and having a fulfilling career and also having children is fantastic. It's a huge privilege. And you're able to give to your patients, to your students, to your research and to your family. And it's a very fulfilling way of living your life. 
Mm. And so I'm very keen that Claire should do that. Now, recently I've started being involved in the gender pay gap and I have seen the huge financial penalty that motherhood brings to women in mm -hmm. the health service, mm -hmm. and particularly to lady doctors. Mm -hmm. And I can see that by maintaining your position in the workplace that that pay gap reduces. My daughter is a, a teacher, but the problems are the same, I'm sure, in education. And so I think in order to have equality as women, it's worth making sure that you remain in the workplace if you can. Hmm. You are at the moment leading the, the first and biggest ever, obviously, pay gap review in the NHS. Is, is that right? Yes, yeah. yes. What have you found generally, but also specifically, I'm sure it's too too much to say for a long, uh, for a short podcast, but what have you found for mothers specifically? Well, first of all, I need to credit the people that I'm working with. The gender pay gap research work is being led by a fantastic woman called Professor Carol Woodhams from the business school at Surrey University. So, so she's leading all of the complicated uh arithmetic, data gathering, data analysis, econometrics. I am like the, the the project supervisor, the project lead, the chair of the of the steering group. And it's been it's the best thing. It's been the most fantastic piece of work because it's absolutely huge. We have millions of data points. We sent out a questionnaire to 40,000 doctors and we've got replies from from uh, more than 6,000 of them. And we've done one-on-one uh, -on -one interviews with 30 individuals as in-depth interviews. And so it's been a fantastic piece of work to be involved in. The, the biggest thing is that the gender pay gap is everywhere. And that quite shocked me. Um, what, what do you mean by that? That everywhere you look, there is a gender pay gap. Um, in medicine, in every branch of medicine, at every level in red medicine, in every different kind of job in medicine, except for real, real minority cases that are very anomalous. Mm. Um, but everywhere you look, there's a gender pay gap. And the the total pay gap is around 18%. And in talking to Carol, that is big for a single profession. Mm. So if you give a definition of a gender pay gap, it's the percentage difference in pay per hour mm. of women compared to men. Mm. And if you think about it, it's it's like men have VAT added to their salaries compared to women. Hmm. And it's not equal pay, isn't it? It, it is. So it equal is pay is different. Equal pay is the law. So equal pay for equal work is the law. But what the pay gap review work has shown is that as women progress in their careers, they progress at a slower trajectory. Hmm. And it seems that the more children they have, the slower that trajectory is and so it means by the time they're they've reached my age they're earning significantly less than mm. the men mm. the other interesting thing is that if a specialty tends to be male heavy the pay is higher and if a specialty tends to be female heavy the pay gap may be lower but the pay is also lower mm. and that you find across across many many industries and that, i really think that has to change there's no reason why that should be the case and that's why that's exactly why i set up leaders class well there's, there are reasons there's no justification i would say so the main reasons are to do with age men tend to be older 
in the profession and men tend to be in more senior positions. Mm. Part-time working plays a part. It certainly slows down women's trajectory. And what we're doing with the work using some very complicated statistics is working out what the components are that contribute Mm. to that 18% gap so that we can work out then how to mitigate. And if a parent wants to go to their HR department and suggest three strategies to start addressing that gender pay gap? The first is to promote more women and to encourage women to reach senior positions and also to stop attrition. Mm. A lot of women, as we were talking Mm. about earlier, a lot of women just say, this is not worth it, it's too difficult, let's go. Mm. And personally, I think that's a great tragedy after all that work and all that training. So um, to promote more women. Um, The second is transparency. I naively thought that women in equivalent positions to men as, for example, medical directors or whatever job they're doing, got paid the same, but actually they don't. And I'm sure that if we all knew that, we would fix it. And it it seems to be that men are better able to negotiate or more interested in negotiating higher salaries. So I think transparency is a thing. Uh, Another thing that we found from the qualitative aspects of the work is that there are still a number of inappropriate behaviours that put women off. And so there's less overt discrimination. I think it's called microaggressions about women that they make them feel uncomfortable in the workplace. And so I think we need to work really hard on ensuring that we truly have a, a culture that of equality so that those those mm. comments are not made mm. that's quite a difficult one to change another thing another recommendation is to look at what we do about clinical excellence awards because women don't apply and in the same numbers as men now if they do apply they're more like they're just as likely to get them but they don't put in for them and so then you look at the culture in the organizations that are supporting people to get them and they're not supporting the women to get them quite as early as they are the men i think that's another example of where the, the design of how pay rises are awarded the design of how you are celebrating people and so on and so forth. That's so important. I don't know if you've read Iris Bonnet's work. I, I, so, was going to, you know. I was just going to mention her name, this diversity by design. Mm-hmm. And I think in HR practices in the NHS, we need to design in diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, uh, as an interesting aside, one of the other difficulties that people have in the workplace at the moment, I think probably particularly women, is with burnout. And there's a lot of talk about resilience. Well, I think we probably also ought to have resilience by design. And to get back to what we were talking about, about culture, we shouldn't expect the NHS workforce to become more and more resilient. We ought to put into the HR practices and the culture of an organisation the kind of compassionate behaviour that encourages people to be resilient. So we ought to extend Iris Bonnet's work to resilience Mm. by design as well as diversity by design. And then we'd find that our women would thrive. I love that concept. You should write a book about that. (laughs) (laughs) Write another book. (laughs) So that's all important. And obviously 
career progression is important as well. And I'm very happy that with the fellowship program, we have about one in three who got promoted, even though they have children, young babies. So there are things you can do to make it work. But I'm interested. So if you can't access this, that type of support, like we offer, if your organization doesn't have the resilience by design or gender equality by design, do you have any advice on hey conversations or have, have you made and this is very personal so feel free not to answer have i ever had a pay conversation no 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 Uh, but i'm on a i'm on a few boards and i was really interested recently that on a board one of the male colleagues on the board was promoted to be vice chair and the first thing that came back to rim to the remuneration and nominations committee was how much Mm -hmm. How much I, I I think I deserve an extra X for doing this job, and I then realised in the meeting that the only chair of a subcommittee on this board that hadn't negotiated a pay rise for themselves for being a chair was the woman, mm-hmm. and I was thinking, oh my goodness! So women don't feel comfortable negotiating higher salaries for themselves. And that's something that we need to address. Mm. And the other Iris Bonnet quote, I think it's a quote from her, is don't fix the people, fix the system. So I think it isn't helpful to use the old Pygmalion thing that says, why can't a woman be more like a man? in Mm. order for them to progress. Uh, We ought to have a system whereby women and men can progress equally without women becoming by men like men. So I don't think the answer is to make women negotiate more like men. Mm. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Is there anything else that would be useful for someone who has now got a young child, is thinking about their career, anything else that they should think about? following your work from the gender pay gap review my main advice would be to hang on in in order to help us fix the system and to be aware of the fact that there are inequalities and that a measure of inequality is actually a gender pay gap the gender pay gap and if you're aware of it, you're less likely to allow it to continue to happen. So each individual woman needs to know that this is going on in order to be able to put, to, to point it out to their employers to make sure that it stops mm. or reduces. I suspect it won't ever go because men are not going to start having babies or at least not too many of them. And so we need to make sure that we are aware. In medicine, you always say if you have a diagnosis, you're halfway to finding the the cure, the management plan. We have a diagnosis that there is a gender pay gap. We need to work on the management plan. I want to talk to you about career progression. I find sometimes that the things that really get people to progress in their careers aren't necessarily the things that are written in the handbooks about how to <laughs> progress. What, what did you learn in your own journey about, about how you to prog- how to progress your career? Or did it just happen? I think the first thing is that I, 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 people laugh when I say this and they say that I'm just deluded, but I don't think of myself as being terribly ambitious. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to do a really good job at the time. And I would look around 
the environment that I was working in and see things that were just in need of fixing, I would set about fixing them. And so I wasn't particularly thinking about being strategic in the long term. So women are often told you need to be more strategic. And actually, I don't think that's right. I think women are strategic, but they're strategic in small incremental steps. And so they're not thinking about what the huge, great white future is, but they are thinking about, well, this needs fixing and this needs fixing. And together, if you carry on on a journey of fixing the things that need fixing, you are actually ending up being strategic, but strategic in little incremental bites. How did you get, for example, the uh, president of the Royal College role? Like, is it is there anything practical? <laughs> I I'm just, I'm, I'm intrigued. Is, is there anything that you would tell your daughters about career progression? Well, first of all, go for it. So all women, probably all men too, but more so with women, I think, have the imposter syndrome and think that, well, little silly little me can't possibly do that job. And the answer is, of course, you can. And so with the Royal College of Physicians job, I realize now I scan for things that need to be sorted out. And the culture within the Royal College of Physicians was one of those things. It's very old fashioned, very male organization, fantastic organization. I love it, but very traditional. And I felt it needed modernizing. And so I put my hat in the ring because of that. Now there was a history of it. I did put my hat in the ring to be president the time before I actually got it and was unsuccessful. And it took quite a lot of support and encouragement from my family and my husband to, to, to have another go. And it was because I felt that there was a direction, there was something that I could give to the college that would make the college better. And it's an election. And there were 10 people on the ballot. And it's single transferable vote. And I suspect that what might have happened is people voted for who they for the bloke they wanted and then thought, well, it's probably a good idea to vote for a woman too. And so I came through. Uh, I'm not sure that anybody was more horrified and shocked than I was. And then I thought, well, I've got to do this and I've got to do it really well because I have a responsibility to those who are coming up next. Fantastic. I want to ask you about being a parent over all these years. And I don't want this to come out wrong, but how did you know that you were a good enough parent? <laughs> how did I know I was a good enough parent? I probably wasn't. I felt terribly guilty every time a child was ill. I used to shoot into things like school sports days, way furiously so that my children could know I was there and then sometimes have to run away and go and do something else. But I'm hugely grateful to my children for putting up with me. And one of the things that is absolutely lovely is, for example, when I got the DBE, is the pride that my family have in me for doing it. And at the time, no, sometimes I felt like an absolute pants parent. 
I once, actually, I don't know whether I should admit it, it's probably too late, I once took a child back to school a week early because I got the date wrong. To be fair to me, the school had changed the date and I just hadn't picked up the, the, the changed date. But I did actually take a child all dressed up in a school uniform back to school a week early because I was struggling really to make everything work out. And one of the things that really struck me was that for me to be able to go to work and thrive and be okay, not only did I have to be okay, my husband had to be okay, my three children had to be okay, the childcare had to be okay, and the whole extended family and the dog had to be okay. So there was a huge network of people that that you get to rely on. Mm. And part of that is great because you have a huge network, but part of that makes you feel a bit hopeless. Mm. It's like a big puzzle. I wonder what role the dog played in it. Uh, cheering everybody up. The dog's fantastic at cheering babies up. <laughs> that is a very important role. I should probably get, get a dog in that case. It, it, it's an added complexity, though. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. And what do your children say about your career nowadays? Or uh, no, uh, no, about you as a parent nowadays? Oh, they're very nice about it to me. I Well, what, it, what is encouraging, and, and perhaps I should say to people who've got younger children, is that that huge guilt for not being there when something happens or for having to go away when a child is ill or all of that has gone because they don't remember it. But what they do remember is that they have a mother who they can talk to about medicine, about world affairs, about politics, um, and that they can have a conversation with as an adult and that she's got something to say because she's worked hmm. and also has a broad experience of other people and other lives, which I think that non-working women don't get. I think their world closes in and so they become less confident in themselves and perhaps less interesting as a person to other people because of that loss of confidence. Mm. So I never had that because I was always doing something. I was always I was always at work. Mm. And is there anything you'd like to say to the fathers listening to this who may be on share parental leave, who may be the first father in their organization to ask for flexible working? I, so in my day, it wasn't the culture to do that. But I'm absolutely delighted to see when men do. And I think they get an enormous amount out of it too. I think where the women were missing out on the outside world, the men were missing out on the family world. And actually being in a position where you can dip into both is hugely fulfilling. So my son-in-law is very much involved in Lucy, the baby's upbringing at the moment. And I, and I hope he remains so, but I think it's quite difficult for men and as much as women, but in a different way, because the societal expectations are that the women bear the brunt of the childcare. And that's something that that we need to work on and we need to change. Mm, absolutely. Wasn't it time wise that found that actually flexible working requests of men get rejected a lot more? There, there is a penalty of perception, which are parental leave. People think you're less committed to your career, similar to when women have children, when yes. you take on shared parental <clears throat> leave. So. Hmm. Yes, I think it, and to me, bringing up a family is a shared responsibility. 
When we were younger, we had a crazy life because my husband was a news, an editor in the news, and I was a doctor. And actually, our lives were punctuated by world events because he covered some of the really huge stories of the time and I was working as a doctor and suddenly our whole infrastructure fell apart when he suddenly had to go somewhere to cover some big story and I was on my own and had something to do and couldn't care for the children and that's where the responsibilities of the other family members come in mm. and what what we did was have an arrangement whereby the person who had the most flexibility in their day to be able to pick the children up was the one that did it. And sometimes it was me and sometimes it was my husband. Mm, fantastic. And sometimes it all fell apart. <laughs> what did you do when it fell apart? Uh, Can you remember a particular had, moment? Yes, we, we had grandparents who we would ask to do things. And then there was one that was hilarious where my husband being a journalist, the war had brought, broken out in a small country and he had to go and do his thing. I was teaching at a weekend and he was the one that was going to be looking after the children, but he'd gone. And so I scooped them all up and took them with me to do some clinical teaching. And the older two were drawing in the nurse's station on the wall, were doing the clinical teaching. And the youngest was too small to do that. So I was jigging her around and and she uh, fell asleep. So I put her on a couch, an examination couch that wasn't being used and carried on doing the teaching. Well, of course, she fell off and smacked herself on the floor and was screaming blue murder because she'd fallen off this couch. So I picked her up and carried on. And so so not only did I have a child on my hip as I was doing this teaching, I had a sobbing child on my hip. And I just thought, well, I, I carried on. I had, it wasn't, wasn't anything else I could do. So what was very funny and taught me a lot was at the end of the teaching session, you get feedback on your performance. And the only piece of negative feedback that I got on that day was that I was a bit curt with one of the candidates and, and that I was in a bit of a bad mood. <laughs> wow. And nobody mentioned the fact that I was carrying a screaming child for at least half an hour of that teaching session. And that was a really important lesson to me that actually people don't really notice if you're doing things a bit differently, as long as you do what you're doing to a reasonable standard. Mm, absolutely. When I set up Leaders Plus at the very beginning, my daughter was maybe two or three months old, still breastfeeding, and, and uh, I took her everywhere. And obviously people are very welcoming because of the whole idea that my social enterprise was all about supporting people with babies. But I've walked into so many, you know, big banks with beautiful marble buildings and, and who are designed to intimidate you. But as soon as I walked in with the baby and uh, got my breasts out, it just changed the atmosphere and people were extremely approachable and, and, and welcoming. I don't know how seriously they took me in that situation, but given they helped me to start up social, uh, Leaders Plus in the end, I think it worked out. Um, as we're I think there's a very different culture now to the culture when I was having children. When when I was having children and trying to get back to work, it was a bit of an odd thing to be wanting to do. Mm. Whereas now I think it's much more normal, which is great. But it is due to people like you who pioneered things like that 
job share back in the 80s that it's now easier but I think we can't rest on our laurels because there's still so much we need to achieve you just mentioned the gender pay gap and we need to be pioneering as bravely as you have to push it further both for men and for women with children Uh, I think I'm quite heartened by the research that's shown that organizations do better if they have a better balance Mm. on their board not just gender but also uh, minority ethnic groups And so I think for the good of the country, the Government Equalities Office says that the GDP would rise if both men and women contributed uh, to the workplace. So there are several reasons why we need to improve the status quo. Absolutely. I want to finish off by asking you what your favourite moment was, if you can think of one, of combining your career with young children. The ones that make me laugh. So I think the the one where I was teaching with a with a screaming child was was uh, just tickled me, made amused me. Another was actually what's the expression out of the mouths of babes. So when I became a professor, my children were quite young, and I was telling the children, I said, "Oh, I've been made a professor," and my son said to me, "Mummy." You're going to have to grow a long white beard. (laughs) (laughs) So that was probably one of my favourites. Oh, that's extremely illustrative of what we've been talking about today. (laughs) So a big, big thank you, Jane. I found this very, very inspiring. And I'm sure the listeners will as well. This is the end of our podcast, unfortunately. If you enjoyed it, then you can contribute to the conversation. You can go on social media for Leaders Plus, it's on Twitter at leaders underscore plus and the same on Instagram if you want to, uh, if you have opinions, thoughts, ideas, suggestions you want to share. And equally, if you know anyone who is as amazing as Jane and you think I should speak to, you would like to hear from, then do let me know. If you're passionate about the stuff we talked about today, you can support what we're doing by subscribing on whatever platform you listen to the podcast and also it really helps us when you do give us a review you can and obviously five star reviews are the most amazing so thank you very much in advance